Lord, we just ask you to bless us today. Bless, bless us as we read your word. Give us insight into what you'd have us to see. And we thank you for each person that's here in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 102, starting at verse 1. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we'll start where, where we left off. 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto you. Hide not your face from me in the day which I am in trouble. Incline your ear unto me in the day which it, when I call Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones burn as a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so, my, so I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I am like a pelican in the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. My enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are, are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declines and I am withered like glass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever and your remembrance unto all generations. You shall arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time of her favor. Yea, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he has looked down from the beginning of his sanctuary and from heaven did the Lord behold the earth. To hear the groanings of the prisoners, to loose those that are appointed to death to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and to praise and his praise in Jerusalem. When the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord, he weakened my strength in the way, he shortened my days. I said, O Lord, take me not away in the midst of, your, of my days. My, your, your years are throughout all generations. Of old have you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish, but you shall endure. Yea, all that shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shall you change them, and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and, and your years have, shall have no end. The children of your servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before you. So we're going to look at this in verse, we left off at verse 16. And it says, When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. So here we're looking at when God builds up Zion or Jerusalem. And we see this over many times that he's done this. He's built them up. But I really believe this is talking about the millennial kingdom. Because that's when they're going to see his glory. For a, for a thousand years, Jesus will rule from Jerusalem on this earth. And Jerusalem will finally have, the Jewish people, Jerusalem will have finally have the kingdom that they were promised, that they will be the center of all things in this earth, and that they will be ruled from Jerusalem, the day that the Jews are waiting for. The, day, the reason they denied Jesus as the Messiah is because he did not come and establish the kingdom that they expected to be established. And remember, just before this, we said, your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof of Zion. And we talked a little bit how Jews have this tendency to really raise up Jerusalem. Whether they live there or not doesn't really matter to them. Their hope is always in Jerusalem. When they have Passover, they end Passover with maybe next year, uh, next year in Jerusalem. So that their idea is to really worship God in Jerusalem which is their hope, they're, they're, they're looking to. And we see this whole issue in the Middle East is centered a lot around Jeru who, who controls Jerusalem. And one of the things about that whole area is in, Jeru in Israel, they have a true democracy and they have freedom of religion in, in, in Jerusalem as nowhere else in the Middle East. You're free to be a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian. It doesn't really matter. You're not, you're not put down. And yet we see all these other places that supposedly have freedom of religion, but as long as you just keep it to yourself. And it's the same thing that's happening in our country. We're, and I brought this out before. We're hearing a lot of our politicians talk not about freedom of religion, 
but freedom of worship. They, they want to say you have the right to worship however you want, as long as you're in your house or in your church. But do not take your, your, your religion outside of those boundaries. And that is not what our founding fathers gave us. They gave us freedom of religion. And that means we bring our religion into our work, into our life. We can speak to people about it. Do you realize how, and how rare that is to be able to speak to people about your religion? In most of the Middle East and even a lot of Asia, you cannot share the gospel without breaking the law. And it's becoming this way in much of Europe, that if you share your religion, they have anti-prostalizing laws that if you share your religion with somebody, you can be arrested, fined, and jailed because you shared God's truth with people. And our country has, has allowed that up until very recently. It's been no problem. And we see right on the horizon where this might just become against the law to practice your religion outside of your home and your church. And we see this. We see this with the lawsuits against uh, Holly Lobby, against the Sisters of uh, whatever that, Holly, Hobby Lobby, whatever that place is called. Uh, you know I'm not a craft person. <laughs> what did I say, Lobby Hobby? Ho hobby, Holly Lobby. Okay, whatever, it's Hobby Lobby. Uh, you've got these uh, photographers and cake decorators that are getting in trouble because they don't want to be par participants in a homosexual marriage setting, uh, and they're being charged with discrimination because they didn't want, they don't want to do something against what they believe. And we're seeing all of this come down to how do we worship God? And is God really part of your life, and is it just something that's personal? And, they, and most of this world is trying to say, make it personal. You do not share it with others. You do not it, doesn't, it shouldn't influence your life because if you're evolved like the rest of us, you'll, you'll be able to put your religion aside and be like the rest of us humanist. And that's what they're trying to tell us. Keep your lives separate. And that's not the way God works. And anybody who is truly religious in whatever religion it is can't do that. Because if you believe what you believe is right, you're going to share it with other people. It's just the way it is. But the world and our government and everything is wanting us just to be basically atheist. Live, athe live like an atheist outside of your church and your church, but you, know, you can do whatever you want in your church, but just don't bring it out. And this is going to be hard because God is going to be glorified. He's going to lift himself up. And it's going to be a shock to the world when he rules from a religious point of view, saying, I am the creator, I am God. Verse 17 said, he will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayers. When we get to the end of our rope and we're praying to God, he hears. He hears our prayers. He hears our prayers long before we're at the end of the rope, but <laughs> definitely when we're at the end of the rope and, and not thinking that, he, that anybody's paying attention, God cares. And you know, because of his grace, he cares even if we brought our trials and troubles upon ourselves with our bad actions, he still cares. And he will still answer. He will still move. He may be a little slower because he wants to realize that we did wrong, but he will answer and he will care and he will deliver. This is something that's very important to always understand. God, in his grace, keeps us. And I love the fact that his grace is so vitally important. He is gracious with us. He loves us so much that he shows us grace. He doesn't give us what we deserve, and he gives us so much more than we don't deserve. And this is such a blessing, and it's really a sad thing to me how many Christians do not understand the grace of God. How many Christians really don't understand his grace? They base all that they do upon earning God's favor somehow. Now, they may say that they know that it's, you get saved by grace, but then from that point on, it seems like they want to forget grace and live under rules. And I can tell you, rules would be really, real fun to live by because it's just, if you do this, you're going to be blessed. If you do this, you're going to be blessed and don't do this. And, you know. But that is not walking in faith. Four times in the scripture, it says, the just shall live by faith. 
And I've said before, it'd be really wonderful if God was just inside me telling me, turn this way, do this, say this, you know, you know uh, go see this person, go do this, you know, take this job, don't take this job, go do this. Uh, you know, how easy would it be if we had God's voice right in our ear? Literally. Take us by the hand and lead us. The only problem with that, there'd be no faith in that. Mm. It would just be following it instructions. Would be it, would, it would definitely be easier, and I've said that myself. It would be real easy if he was just in, you know, you got saved, and all of a sudden God's right there telling you every, every move to make at every step. Now, there are times if we're paying attention, he is there telling us what to do if we're, if we're just listening. Usually we're not listening. Because when he's going to do that is going to be when we're in the hardest point in our life and we're all confused and, and we're flustered and we're frustrated. And sometimes God says, I want you just to slow down and listen. Listen to the still, small voice. Ask for his help. And it's tough. It's tough to be there. But he wants, he will listen. He doesn't despise our prayers when we pray. Now, he may answer no, which we don't like. We, we don't usually like the answer no when he says don't do this or, don't, or, or just answers no. And that's when you'll hear people say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. And the answer back is, well, no is an answer. It may not be the one you wanted, but it is an answer. So, and sometimes God is also saying just wait. It's not the time yet. And this is a, that's another answer we don't particularly care for. That God says, wait, it's not the right time. Many of us have done that with our own kids. They've asked for something that we want to give to them, but it's not the right time to give them. Dad, can I have the cherry red uh, uh, cor uh, viper for Christmas this year when you're only 16 and barely have your license? No, if I could afford it, 16 is not the age for me to give you that car. Uh, <laughs> but... But those are, those, I mean, I'm going to the far extreme on that. But, uh, <laughs> but there are times where God says, the time is not right for you to get this. Yeah. Because you haven't developed the skills to be able to use it correctly. God may be sitting out there for somebody with a, with a handful of money to give them, but he knows that if he gives it to you too early, you'll use it on yourself rather than his ministry and helping him. So he says, we're going to wait. We don't know what God's plan is, but sometimes it is just wait because he knows that if we got it today, it wouldn't be the right timing. And sometimes he just says, yes, you can have this. And, you know, and we love that answer because that's the one we wanted. <laughs> that's the one we wanted. Verse 18 says, This shall be written for the generations to come. The people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. In this case, those that shall be birthed <laughs> shall praise the Lord. This would be wonderful that when people praise God, they just praise the Lord. And in the millennial kingdom, everybody's going to be born into a very good, not perfect, but a good environment where things have been returned to close to perfection. There's still the sin nature out there. There's still death, but there's not, everything is being controlled because he's ruling with an iron rod. He's making sure that things happen. Yes, Annie? Mm -hmm. She was all following that tree before she got tempted. Obviously. Otherwise, what she wouldn't have been called? near it. Huh? What was that called? That was called desiring something she wasn't allowed to have but not sin because sin didn't exist. Okay. I just was curious. They only had one rule, and that was don't eat. And she had. And she had, she really wanted to. And I've said, even when we taught that, that section, she was standing there next to the tree, and the, I can imagine the questions running through her head. Boy, that fruit sure looks good. I wonder why we can't eat it. Why is God being so mean and not allowing us to eat that fruit? It looks so much better than all the other fruit in the garden. You know, so, you know, I, I speculate, but I'm, I'm sure that's what it was, because that's where she was near, and worse yet, Adam was near. He was doing the same thing. That fruit sure looks good. I wonder why, wonder why don't we do the same thing, though, with God? You know, God, why won't you let me do whatever it is the rule we're looking at? You know, God, it, just, you know, it seems like so much fun. All these lost people seem to be having fun doing it. How come, you, how come you made it against the rules, God? God, it just doesn't make sense. 
And then we, and, and you're in trouble. If you start thinking that way about a sin out there, you're in trouble because eventually you're going to fall. But we want to be very careful because it is easy to start desiring something we're not allowed to have. And it's so easy to say, God, all these other people do it and nothing seems to be really going bad in their life. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Most of us, when we get ready to sin, have counted what we think the costs are going to be and we decide we're willing to pay the cost of that sin. The only problem is we haven't counted all the costs. We can't, we've, and even if we've done real in-depth thinking, we still haven't counted all the costs because if we knew all the costs, we'd know that it was going to come, blow up in our face and we wouldn't do it. And we think we're ready to pay the cost when we sin. And I know I've been there. I've done it. I, I've gone, well, if I do this, 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 and this, and this will happen. This might happen. This might happen. This might happen. And I go, well, I'm willing to pay those definites and most of those and those mites so I'm going to go ahead and do it and then God throws in a whole lot of mites that I never even considered uh, and it's like wow I, I didn't think it was going to be this bad and you have to repent and, and, and suffer whatever consequences it is for what you've done and God is saying I'm going to I, there's going to come a time when these people are going to praise me they're going to glorify me they're going to bless me you know, and it's wonderful. We see it even within Christians that we desire to bless and praise him. Yeah. I love coming together with other people and just praising God. I love just to sing by myself. It doesn't matter to me and praise God. The lost don't understand that kind of thought. The lost don't look, look at us and go, well, how can you be wanting to go to church? How can, you, how can you go to church as often as you do? How can you be reading your Bible as much as you do? How can you, you know, even worse, some of the Christians, how can you listen to nothing but preaching all day on the radio? <laughs> yeah. Because I am hungering after God's word so much. Now, I will tell you, 20 years ago, I did not have the same hunger for getting God's word on the radio all the time. Now, I've always loved going to church. That has not been a, a problem for me. I got saved, and I wanted to be in church. The only problem at 10 years old, it was very hard to get to church with nobody else in your family being a Christian. Once my dad got saved, that was wonderful. We went to church every time the doors were open, and he could drive. <laughs> but uh, there needs to be this desire. When we get saved, and we, we should start desiring spiritual things, desiring God in a great way. And the more we get close to him, the more we're going to desire him and his people. To the point where I just can't wait to open my Bible. I just can't wait to pray to him. I just can't wait to get to church and be with God's people. I can't wait to tell people what God has done for me. That's part of growth. And it takes time. Mm -hmm. And when you get there, you go, wow, how did I miss this for as many years as I missed it? And then you go, wow, I just want more of it. And that each time we get to a level, it, it drives us to go deeper with God and, and seek more of him and go a little further, a little further, a little further to the point where we're, we start living for God more than anything else. It says in verse 19, For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoners, to loose them that are pointed to death. God looks down, here's the destitute, here's the, here's the groaning. He looks down at the earth. And I love this, to hear the groaning of the prisoners. Before we're saved, we are prisoners to sin. Even after we're saved, sometimes we struggle with it, but we are no longer prisoners to sin after we're saved because we have the power living in us to be victorious. So if we allow ourselves to be bound up by sin again, it becomes our choice. And this is God saying, I hear the groaning, and I want to loose those that are appointed unto death. He comes in, he takes off the shackles. He takes off the, the leg irons. He takes off the, the wrist irons. He takes off the chains between the two. He takes off the weight of the chains, you know, being bound to one another. And he says, you are free. 
Hopefully you can remember back when you got saved and remember when you were free from the guilt of the sin, the joy that that brought, the, the peace that it brought, the joy toward God because you were loosed from death. You were, you were made alive. This is one of the differences between Christians and non-Christians. We are alive in the Spirit. You know, this, this new phase that's going on in, the, in our country, the zombie, the zombie phase, everything is zo they're zombies. But you know, in reality, anybody who is not a Christian is really a walking dead person. They are zombies in, in a real sense. Mm -hmm. They are walking dead. That's a good way to look at it. They have nothing to look forward to but hell and death. And they are walking dead. When we get saved, we are made alive and we have God and heaven to look forward to in the future. But even more importantly, we have God in heaven now. This is one of the things about being a Christian that is so wonderful. We are alive now. We, are in, we, are started, we have started our eternal life now. What is eternal life? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is life. He lives within us and gives us life from the moment we accept him and we are alive. And this is why we find pleasure in the little things that God does because we're already alive. We're there. We're seeing it. We're not the walking dead trying to figure out how to find life that doesn't exist because it's in God as they reject God. Well, they're, they're the walking dead. They, they also have this aspect of they are prisoners to sin. They are bound when you are lost, you have no choice but to sin because you don't have the power not to sin. And they are completely destitute of life. When we did the Truth Project, one of the things that uh, he mentioned was lost people are POWs, they're prisoners of war. We need to start understanding when we're dealing with the lost, a couple of things. Number one, they can't help but do what they do. Okay? because they're lost and they're prisoners. They cannot feel great joy that lasts any, in, very long because they are prisoners and they are lost. They don't have life. They cannot see the pleasures of things because of where they're at in their life. They are going to act in a sinful way because that is who they are. When they do something good and kind or nice, it is usually tinged with, I want something. And we all know what that's like, because if you do something really nice as a Christian to somebody just because you want to show them God's love, they might even ask, or you'll hear them be commenting and wonder what they want. Okay. And we've all been there when somebody's done something really out of, out of the ordinary nice to us. It's like, okay, what do they want? You know, our, kids, our kids do that. You know, especially my daughter, she used to do this, Daddy! <laughs> What do you want, daughter? Nothing. Uh, okay, what do you want? <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, there, there's this point where usually when the lost do something for you, they want something. It may be a favor that you owe them for the future. It may be something they want right now. But they're wanting something. So when we show God's love to them and be nice to them, in the back of their mind is, what is it that you're wanting from me? Now, when are you going to call in your favors for being so nice to me? And this is something we need to be careful of. The, the lost world looks at it and God is saying, I'm coming to rescue you. I want to deliver you from your bondage. I want to set you free. That is our goal for, for the lost world, is when we witness to them, our goal is to set them free. Show them God's love. In 1 John it says, we love him because he first loved us. We show God's love to the lost world so that they will fall in love with him. Not for us, not look at me how good I am and how nice I am to you because I am so special, but I'm showing you God's love to you so that you will love, fall in love with him. And it's very important that we understand what it is we're trying to do. We give the gospel 
out to people so that we can make disciples so that they can go out and, and witness to other people and make disciples. But the key to this is that we make disciples, that we teach somebody how to live for God. And we start out with our own family, our own family members that get saved. We teach them to be disciples. We, we, we bring a friend to Christ and we start teaching them how to be a disciple, how to get into the Word of God, how to go to church, how to do these things. And we need to also understand as Christians, if you have a desire to learn something in, in the Christian walk, look and see who has what you want. You want to learn how to pray? Go find somebody who knows how to pray and ask them if you can pray with them and have them teach you how to pray. You want to learn how to be a disciple, uh, 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 an evangelist? Go find somebody who's sharing the gospel and spend some time with them and say, I want to learn what you do. How did Jesus teach the disciples? Two ways, actually, and the one we don't usually think about. He taught them with words, but you know where they learned most of how to do things? They spent every minute of each day with him. They saw... How does he handle that soldier that's being obnoxious to him and, and showing love to him? Because I can guarantee, even though it doesn't say it, there had to have been at least one or two soldiers, Roman soldiers, that gave him a hard time. How did he handle the tax collector? How did he handle this situation? How did he do this situation? We teach more to our children and to those who are looking at us by what we do than what we say. And my example that I gave, you know, when I first came to, to Kingman, I took the, kid, the youth group down to, to Phoenix, and I was going through the, through the uh, speed trap there in uh, Wickenburg. Is that the first one? Yeah. Wickenburg. Never knew, never saw the speed, omit, the speed limit change, and I got pulled over. Now, luckily, I only got a, a warning out of the deal, but in the background, these kids were all saying, well, my dad would be cussing up a storm and being angry and hollering, and I was just being respectful. Was, you know, here you go, sir. I didn't see the speed, you know, speed change, you know, uh, you know, being very respectful, very honest. You know. What did that say to all those kids in, the, in that van who weren't used to seeing that kind of respect for authority? Here's somebody who says they're a Christian, and they're acting totally different than the examples that I have. It triggered a lot of conversation that night with the boys when we were getting ready for bed because they had lots of questions. They had seen a Christian react totally different than anything they had ever seen, and they had questions about how this Christianity was worked out. Very important for us. We are always being watched. When we say we're a Christian, we have people watching us. They want to see, do you act like a Christian when things are going wrong? Do you act like a Christian when this happens or th that happens? You know, how do you live out your Christianity and you're being watched? And sometimes we're a good example. Sometimes we're a bad example. But we're always out there being watched. And we are teaching whether we think we're teaching or not. And our life reveals who Christ is. And so we want to be very careful that we live in a way not because we're trying to please God, but that we are an ambassador and an example to others of how a Christian lives. And then we look at our kids and say, well, how much, you know, what's really sad is when you look at your kids and you see yourself coming out of your kids, the things that you didn't want them to catch about Christianity, about the way to live. But we lift him up because we want to see them loosed from prison. Let's see... Where did I leave off? <laughs> Here the prone, 20, 21. To declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together in the kingdom and the kingdoms to serve the Lord, to declare, to announce, to recount the name of the Lord. Now we've talked about this many times. Name of the Lord is not trying to say that you have to call him Yahweh, his, his Hebrew name, okay? Name literally is the reputation of God. Everything he stands for. And we've talked about this many times. Uh, it's not as popular now as it used to be, but you used to hear people talk about, especially to their kids, this is your name, this, what it mean, this is what your name means. And, it, and they weren't literally saying, you know, 
you know, that your name means, you know, whatever it might mean. It, they were saying the reputation of this family is we're hard workers or you can count on us keeping our word or whatever it might be that your family associated with your name. For some people, they wanted to live down their name because their name was, you're the town drunk, you're the lazy person, nobody wants to hire you because you don't work. And that is also names out there on the negative side of things. God's name. We are adopted children in God's family. We impact his name by what we do. How we act, how we behave, how we lift up his name or bring it down into the mud with us. His name is to be declared and his praise. Oh, I just love the word praise. We want to be able to lift him up. Give him glory. Give him honor. And it says that we declare his name and his praise when the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. In that last day especially, in the millennial kingdom, everything will be happening at Jerusalem. Government will be centered in Jerusalem. The nations will be coming to Jerusalem. The people will be coming to Jerusalem to worship God, to praise God. He will be the mighty ruler in Jerusalem. And remember, we know that during the millennial kingdom, over 66% over 66 of the population of the world will be just have been destroyed by that time. And there's going to only be a remnant of people left during the millennial kingdom. Everybody... Any, the only ones in the millennial kingdom will be those who had not taken the mark of the beast. So it's going to be a very small population. We will be coming back in our glorified bodies to help him rule. So there'll be, there'll be lots of Christians there in their glorified bodies. And there's going to be people being born and dying and everything else during the millennial kingdom. And it says that if, they, if somebody lives to only be, I think it was 100, they'd be considered a child during the millennial kingdom because the lifespans are going to be expanded back again. The, the environment is going to be fixed up a good bit. But God is saying the nations will gather. The nations will gather to praise him, to be centered in there on praise. And he is going to heal and set free the prisoners and we will be with him but we're even seeing that even to the, at this day we're seeing God being lifted up and glorified in the midst of the darkness and this is something that's wonderful to consider the darker the world gets the more we as Christians shine out a bright light even if we're a backslidden Christian who holds even one or two truths of God strong we shine out as a light. And we think about this. I think about this when we do the candlelight service and we turn the lights off in the, in the sanctuary and there's one candle on. And it barely lights up anything. But by the time we get the 20 or 30, 40 candles lit, everything is, is illuminated very well. The darker the darkness, the brighter a single light is. And we as Christians, as the world gets darker and darker, we're going to shine brighter and brighter. Whether we want to or not, if we are following God in any way, shape, or form, our light will shine very bright in the darkness. And there's, a big, there's becoming a greater difference between God's people and the lost world because the lost world is starting to get very much like the days of Noah always wanting to do wrong, always wanting to try to justify what they're, what they're doing. And their life stands in very stark contrast to those of us as Christians that are trying a even a little bit to follow God. And we see him moving, and we see the light being brightly shining. And people draw, get drawn to the light because Jesus is lifted up in that, in that area. And the more he's lifted up, the more people are drawn to him. And he says, I am going to gather all these people and they're going to serve me. Verse 23, he weakened my strength in the way he shortened my days. And this is literally, he humbled my strength and he shortened my days. How much does God work at weakening who we are, humbling us? 
He does not want our flesh standing in the way. And this is something that we don't like, especially when it's where we think we're strong. God likes to destroy where we think we're strong because he wants it to be all him. And I've shared this over and over before. Whatever you think you will not sin in, be careful because that is exactly where God is going to bring you down. Because if you think you're strong enough, God, I, I would never do whatever it might be. A couple problems with that. Number one, we don't put a guard on that area of our life because we're so sure that we're going to not fall in that area. Because I am just so strong, I will never do whatever that area might be. And Satan just says, okay, you're, there's no guard there. Let me, let me uh, go uh, show you how strong, you know, get you to fall. And I've shared with you, for me, it would have been... When I was a teenager, if anybody had ever told me there would be a time that I did not want to go to church and did not go to church, I'd have laughed at them because from the time I was 10, I wanted to go to church. Well, even before that, I was going to church as far back as I can remember. Uh, you know, a little four or five-year-old walking to the corner to go to church uh, because nobody else in my family went to church and I wanted to go to church. And then I got so busy in the world trying to earn, earn, earn money, started missing a couple services. Nobody called to say they missed me, got into a pity party, pity party, and then stopped going to church altogether for about two years. And if, like I say, if anybody had told me as a teenager there'd be a time when I didn't go to church, I'd have laughed at them. There's just no way. We need to be careful. The place where we think we're the strongest in is usually where we're going to fall. And God wants us to fall in that area so that he'll humble us and say, you need to depend on me in all areas of your life. But he is going to keep going after us in our strength. He wants our strengths broken down. He wants us to depend on him. It's not saying that our strengths are wrong even, but they have to be subjected to him. He may use our, our, our strengths once it's subjected to him and say, here, I'm going I'm to use this for glorifying me. Because what happens if we do things in our own strength? We end up going, God, look at, uh, hey, hey, God, uh, people, look at me, how good I am. How strong I am, how wonderful I am. And God's saying, no, I want it to be how wonderful he is. And God's saying, I want, to, I want it to be who, how wonderful I am, not how wonderful you are. So he will make sure that our strengths, Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, I am crucified in with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live according to the faith of God. He wants my flesh crucified. Why? So that I can live. So that I can be even stronger in Him. In Him. My life is in Him. My flesh has been crucified. He wants to crucify all of our, my flesh and your flesh. And He's going to take time to do it. Only problem is being, being living sacrifices, we don't like to be crucified. We don't like to have our flesh killed. We reject, we rebel against it. And he's saying it's for your good. And if we only realize that it is for our good, and sometimes it's easy to let something go because it's not that big a deal to you. But when he starts going after your strengths, the place where you think you're strong, it's like, uh, God, uh, go take care of that other part over there. It's not, it's not as big a deal. It's, it needs to be crucified, God. It's, it's weak. And God's saying, no, I want your strength crucified as well. I want the strength crucified so that it can then be revitalized in his power and be used to glorify him. Very important on this that we look at all of this that is always there to glorify God and he wants to weaken what we think our strength is. He wants to humble us and make us fall to him. And he doesn't want independence. <laughs> he wants us to be totally dependent upon him. And having said that, for us, especially as Americans, what are we taught about Americans? Self-reliance. I pulled myself up on my own bootstraps and I don't owe anybody anything and nobody, nobody has rule over me. You know, the American mentality, the American mentality, the American mentality, I don't need anybody. And God's saying, you definitely need me, and let me show you how much you need me. And that's a lot to break through, though, because that's a cultural thing for us Americans to be self-reliant, to be in control. Verse 24, I said, oh, my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. This is kind of an interesting thought that he's giving. God, 
don't take me away. I'm, I'm pretty important, you know, God, your, your days last forever, but I, don't take me away. Very interesting how most of us, at some, in some part, in some way of our life, think that we're important in, in some area of our world that we live in. God, you just can't do without me. There, there's probably places where all of us have that mentality, and God will show us that, no, I don't need you. Because so many times people are in this place where the world just couldn't go on if I wasn't in this part of the world. Now, they probably don't mean the whole world, but their world. Their world, there's some place a lot of times where they think they're so important that without me, this job just wouldn't get done. But God wants to show us that, you know, and it is very true, no matter how important somebody is in a company or a, in, in, in a church or whatever, the church or the company will keep going on with that person when that person disappears. And it's really important to understand that. Unless you're a one-man business, your business will continue to go on that when you're when you're out of the picture and we see this uh, uh, let's see the most recent one that I can think of is Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel died you know and there are probably a lot of people going what will happen when Pastor Chuck dies well you put another pastor in his place and the church goes on uh, the church that I went through Dr. Stevens he passed away and a lot of people were like what's going to happen now he's been the pastor for uh, 50 60 years whatever it was like Chuck Smith was you know, what's going to happen when he dies? He's the driving force. Well, God will put another pastor in the church. God does not have anybody who's indispensable because it's always him that is giving the power. If they, if, if they're, if they are truly indispensable, then they haven't been following God in the first place. Sometimes some family members will think, well, I'm the one that's indispensable to this family. I'm the Christian going light of this family. If I go, then the whole family is going to fall apart. Well, they might fall apart, but that's still God's business, but he's going to put somebody in their path that will be the light for them. We need to keep this in mind. God is the one who's in charge because he's everlasting. He has a plan that stretches out beyond one person's life. Because you think about this, in D.L. Moody's days, who's going to replace D.L. Moody as the evangelist? He's reaching thousands of people. And the next thing you know, we've got a Billy Graham preaching. And we're hearing the same words about, you know, when Billy Graham dies, who's going to be the next evangelist? I don't know who it'll be, but God will raise somebody up. He always has and always will. We've got to keep in mind, I've heard it as a lot of the Christian speakers have gotten old and died. Who's going to replace them? Well, in many cases, they haven't been replaced at all. They just play their tapes. But <laughs> I just say that, you know, you've got, you've got uh, through the Bible with uh, J. Vernon, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Guy's been dead for decades. <laughs> we need to keep in mind, nobody is so important that, that they're, the world is going to fall apart if you're taken out of the picture. And God even says that you know, right here in this verse. God, you're, my days are short, but you are eternal. He has a plan. He has a, a story. And you know, the great stories just keep moving right along. They keep moving. Players change, pieces change, but the but the plan still goes on. The story goes on. On Verse 25. Of old have you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's acknowledging that God's the creator. God, you laid the foundation of the earth. You, know, you have laid the foundations of the world. Everything that the world is built upon, God has done. And we think about the, the complexity of the world. You know, we're only now in, in, our, in, in our generation beginning to understand a lot of the depth of science. And we're getting in deeper and deeper into things. We're finding more and more information out. We're able to take the cell's DNA apart and read it. We're able to understand that the cell is a very complex organism beyond anything that ever was thought about the cell. And yet we're now starting to understand that the cell is so complex that it could not have been formed out of randomness. We think about all the little machinery in there, machinery that tears apart a DNA into RNA and then bring, joins it back together again as it another one that duplicates what, what was just torn apart and then tears it back apart. And then another one that puts, another machine that puts everything, biological machine that puts everything back together into two different DNA strands so that it can split and re reproduce itself. What an amazing thing the cell is. With all that goes on in the, in the cell, a huge factory system in the cell, we used to think of it just as this little 
little thing with a little bit of liquid in the center of it and a little dot in the center. Human cell is comprised of an angel does or does not have a cell. Well, let's put it this way, it has no cell as we would consider cell because it's in a different dimension. Those that would assume that the Bible means angels did. That's why I say we reproduce after our own kind. And we know that even with cells, kinds do not intermix with each other. A dog and a cat can never breed a cat dog. It just won't happen. Now, we as humans might be able to create a DNA that creates a cat dog, but a cat and a dog will not be able to produce a cat dog. It just won't happen. We see that that is an important aspect of this. God has said, I've created everything. I put foundation in it. I put laws in it. And the complexity of what he has done is just an amazing, and, I, and that's why I look at the cell. The cell used to be considered just a cell wall with a, with a nucleus in the center and some, some kind of fluid that it flowed in. We didn't even have the clue what happened in that fluid, what happened in the nucleus, what happened in the cytoplasm, what happened with the various pieces of biological uh, machines is what they're called that tear these things out and put them, duplicate them and put them back together. We didn't, we didn't have a clue on how there was an enzyme that unlocks the cell walls so that the nutrients can get in and the waste could get out into the bloodstream. Okay, how, how did all that happen with, by chance? It wouldn't have happened. Did you have the enzyme that needed the key without a lock? Then you would have had a reason for having the enzyme, and the enzyme would have gone away before the lock was created. Did you have a lock without a key, with, and there, therefore you couldn't get anything inside the, the, the cell, so the cell died because it starved to death, because it didn't have the key to get it, to open the lock to get it its food. You know, there's so much in there, there's no way that it just randomly happened. And, and that is just the smallest, of the, the smallest of all living organisms, the cell. And all the cells that we know of that are alive operate under the same principles. Not exactly, but the same principle, the same design. Why? Not because evolution started it, but because God is a designer and he had a great design and he just kept reusing the same design. Well, one thing that we have noted over the years is the more abundant food is, the larger, the large, no, no, the larger human beings get. Not just fat, but the larger they get. There was a time when food was scarce, famines were frequent, and the size of the people was much smaller than even today when food is more prevalent. In America, where we have a lot of food, our people tend to be taller than a lot of the rest of the world because there's an abundance of food that can handle the larger people. The promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey, lots of food. Their people would have been taller. That whole area had people that are called giants. And by giants, we read like Goliath, nine foot, you know, nine foot six, which would still be considered pretty good-sized person in our day and age. But we're starting to see more people pushing the six-and-a-half, seven-foot range because food is abundant. That's why there were giants back then. <laughs> Their food was abundant. I imagine that most of the people were taller before the flood, before scarcity really kicked in after the flood. And then the scarcer the food was, the shorter people got in general. So. This is, not, this is known scientifically, the more, the more abundant food is, the, 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 the more height and size people get. And it's just part of the survival of the fittest. You know, you, the strong will survive and there's food enough to, for them to survive. When food is scarce, it's not good to be big when the food, when the food is scarce. So you would, be, you would be dwindling down in size because the bigger people would start to kind of die out a bit. So, you know, it's the same thing when Darwin saw the finches of the Galapagos Islands and he says, here's my proof. These ones have real fat beaks because it's been dry and they needed to tear the wood apart. So they survived. Now it's wet and they have to get, they have to have the beak that gets it. So they need a long beak to get the bugs that are deep into the wood. And so it was just a survival of the fittest section and they would change according to which one survived. And so we see, you know, th and that is not evolution. That is just 
God saying the, 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 weak, the weak die out and the strong survive. And that's part of what nature does in the, in the way it is in the fall. That the weak die and the strong survive. And that's not, that's not evolution. That is just survival. And it's the same thing. Why are so many, why in the areas where the sun shines the brightest are, mo are people with dark skin or dark skin? Well, because dark skin was a great advantage where the sun shines brightly 365 days a year and you didn't want to be sunburnt uh, all that time and, and, and get skin cancer and all of that. And why are light people in the north? Well, because you needed to absorb as much sun as you possibly could because there wasn't a lot of it. So it's, again, the survival. It's not that each one of them are different. It's just that's what was needed in that area to survive. Same thing when you look at animals. Heavy-coated animals lived in the cold weather and survived well. And so after a few generations, you have nothing but heavy-coated animals being produced because all the light coats died out in the... In the equator, it'd be the exact opposite. A heavy-coated dog or, or animal would not survive well in the heat. So you would end up with very thin-coated animals to no-coated animals, like some of, the, some of the hairless dogs that are out there. So, but again, it's God put a plan. He laid the foundations of this world. He is the one that put the heavens are the work of his hand. He is the creator. He is the master builder. Verse 26, They shall perish, but you shall endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shall you change them, and they shall be changed. Everything gets old and dies out. And, God, and I love this picture. And as a vesture, as a piece of clothing, God, you just take them off, throw it in the laundry hamper, and put a new one on. <laughs> you know, which is really what he's saying here. The, the, they, wax, they, they wax old and he just, takes, he just strips off the one piece of clothing, sets it aside and puts another one on. And this is what he's done all through the generations. We start all the way back. Moses leads the people of Israel out. He dies. Joshua puts on the garment of, of leadership. And Joshua was a totally different leader than, than Moses. Joshua dies, and then we go through a whole series of judges that are raised up in Israel, each one of them with a different way of leading. We come to the place where they're tired of being led by judges, and they go, God, give us a king. Now, that wasn't a surprise. God already told them in Deuteronomy that when you ask for a king in Exodus, you know, when you ask for a king, this is what a king's going to do. It wasn't if you ask for a king. If you read it very closely back in those, it says, when you ask for a king... <laughs> This is what the king's going to do. So they get Saul. Saul starts out really in a, in a pretty good place, but he, he get, power goes to his head, and he becomes a pretty terrible leader quickly. God replaces him with, with David, and then Solomon, and then Rehoboam, and all these other guys, each one of them being a leader in their own way, but each one, line after line, being replaced. We see it within the church, through church history. You see Jesus. You see the apostles, and you see all the different early church fathers that we have that were trained by, initially by the disciples, but each one trained the next generation. And you see how the church grew from all these different leadership. It's so important. God always has a plan, and he says, people, you're going to get old, you're going you're to expire, and God will just put the next person in, in your place. He's going to put the next one there. And we always kind of worry sometimes, well, God, what's going to happen? You just put somebody totally different in. Well, God's got a new plan with a new person, and we just need to adapt. The hard thing is sometimes people don't want to adapt to the new person. God, I, liked, I, I really liked the previous leader. I don't want a new leader. I, I, I like this one. You know, sometimes we're pretty happy when it's, God, I hated that new leader. Thank you for giving us a new leader. But sometimes, especially in churches, it's, God, I really like that pastor. Why did he have to retire or die of a heart attack or, or an accident or, you know, God, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want a new leader. God is saying it's time for a new vision, a new call, because a new leader will bring in a new direction and a new emphasis. Because if they don't, it's not theirs and it won't work. 
And this is something I have seen in, in another church where their, their head pastor died and they're still holding on to his vision. And they're suffering because of it. They're suffering in many ways because they're holding on to that other vision that's not the new leader. And the new leader is finally starting to say, well, no, we need to make some changes. Things just aren't going well and they're, and they're starting to put in the changes that need to be made. And there's a lot of people who don't like it because they liked the old, they liked what was going on. They liked where it went to. They liked what happened to it. But it's time to bring in new. And it's something that's very important. If, when we're walking with God, he's oftentimes going to give us new vision because what worked in the past may not be what's where you're supposed to go in the future. And it's very important that we keep a freshness in our direction that we're going in. And it's really hard for churches that have been around for a long time because they get kind of stuck. Well, I remember when we used to do <laughs> this, and it was really good, and it was really productive. And God's saying, well, forget about that. I've got a new plan for you. This is where we're going now. And it becomes, and if you fall into it, you, you go, oh, and you get to see where it goes. And it's like, wow, this is really good. The only problem is 20 years from now, don't be going, I remember when, <laughs> you know, we did this. You know, no. <laughs> We need to stay in the freshness of God, in the newness of God. His blessings are new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. We need to be with God. Where are you today, God? What do you want me to do today, God? Not keep reliving what he told us to do in the past, because it probably isn't the same thing. Now, it may go for a couple months, even years, maybe a decade, but at some point there's going to be a time when something has to change. And I think of something like music in the church that, that people have problems with all the time. You know, I want to sing, you know, you get a lot of older, we just want to sing the good old hymns. Well, the good old hymns a hundred years ago were the contemporary music of that day. Okay? And everybody was griping back then, we can't sing these songs, these are blasphemous to sing these songs, we're supposed to be singing whatever was before that. And we need to be very careful that we don't get stuck in the past and not grow where God wants. Does that mean we change just for change's sake? No. We don't change just because we need to change, but we also stay and listen to God and say, God, what is it that you want us to do? How do I witness to people? And this changes in certain very subtle ways over the years. How do we worship God changes in subtle ways over the years. How do we preach the gospel? How do we preach a message? And I've already shared with you, I, I believe that it was Spurgeon who says there's going to come a time when people won't endure a two-hour service. Uh, a sermon, not even service, but a sermon. You know, where are we in our day and age? <laughs> you know, preach more than 20 to 30 minutes in most churches, and they're like, when's this pastor going to shut up and quit talking? Uh, and it wasn't so long ago that the sermon was the whole service pretty much. You sang a song or two and then you went into a long sermon and the preacher talked and continued to talk. And so we see all this differences going on and we see people, and believe me right now, the church is under great pressure by a lot of people from the outside. People's attention spans are only 10 to 15 minutes long, so you need to break it up with a play or a drama or music, commercial. and with a, basically a commercial. You know, you got to put your commercial in there, and then you can come back and finish your sermon. So start breaking your sermons up. You know, and I have problems with that mentality. I really do have problems with that mentality. Do things the world's way because the God's way doesn't work. And I have problems with that. We've got to be very careful. That's why this whole entertainment-based churches anymore kind of bother me to the point where, okay, we're doing things the world's way. And I understand why they do it. I do understand it, but I'm not sure that it's what God wants. All right, let's look at this. Uh, two more verses. We're going to finish. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God does not change. In the New Testament, he says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God does not change. He is immutable, non-changing. He is who he is, and he will always be who he is. And the world wants to tell us, well, you Christians just have to 
grow up, get, get evolved like the rest of us. We've, given, we've gone past all those old myths in the Bible and, and, and incorrect sayings. You know, get, get with the times. God says sin is sin and sin is going to be punished. And the day that we can't preach that God is sin and teach it correctly, we've got a problem. Because God is always going to have a problem with sin because he is perfection. He is always going to say, my son paid this price. You need to be preaching that there is sin and that he paid the price. We need to keep in mind God is who he is. And you know what? He really doesn't care what people think about him because he is God. I used to say that as a manager. I'm going, well, I don't like you. I go, my job's not to be liked. My job is to run this business. Now, it's better. I always liked being liked, but by the same token, it wasn't my job to be liked. God's job is not to be liked. Does he want to be liked? Does he want to be loved? Absolutely. But his job is to be God. He is God. He is going to be God. Always. Because that's who he is. And he really doesn't care what his creation thinks about him. (laughs) If we don't think that it's fair that he's God, that he doesn't change, then that's our problem, not his. And this is what I've said, you know, McGee always said, where I and God disagreed, God is right and McGee is wrong, I, I don't put my name in there. Any place that Ralph and God disagree, Ralph is wrong and God is right, period. And hopefully you all will take that same place. Any place you disagree with God, he's right, always. And we need to bow to him and humble ourselves to him. And then the last one, the children of your servants shall continue and their seed shall be established before you. He's continuing the same thought. God, the children are going to replace the adults, and you're going to continue. And their children are going to replace them, and you're still going to be their God. And those children are going to replace them, and you're still going to be their God. We need to keep that in mind, which is why we need to train up the next generation to take over. Because eventually, they're going to take over. Whether we train them or not, they're going to take over. They're going to take over the businesses. They're going to take over the churches. They're going to take over everything because eventually the older people die. (laughs) The older people eventually die, no matter how you look at it. The older we get, eventually we, you know, if we don't die early for dumb mistakes, we will eventually die (laughs) just because we get too old to live. Well, even if you live 900 years old, the next generation still comes up and follows you. You know, if we live to be 3,000 years old, the next generation eventually will take over take over our life. But God is still the one above that. And we need to really keep that in mind. God wants us to really remember, God, you are in charge. God, you are in control. God, I am just the tool that you're using today. I am just the tool that you're using at this moment in whatever area of your life he's using you. And earlier, many of you mentioned, you know, when I mentioned this idea that some of us always have some place where we think that we're, God couldn't do things. I guarantee you do because God is using you in some area of your life and never downplay it. God is using every one of us in some way. We are being watched by people and we're being used in ways that we don't even begin to understand. And when we get to heaven... We, God will show us the ways that we ministered to people that we never dreamed that we were ministering. And the last thing I will say, and I've given this story so many times, with my gout problems, you know, I had that time when I had gout for six months, walking around church, doing my business, on crutches, in pain, thinking, God, this doesn't make any sense to me. How can anything good ever come out of this? But God used that. At least one person came up to me and said they were inspired. How were they inspired? Just because I served God in pain. You never know how people are watching you. Never. You never know how your faithfulness in some area that you don't even think is important. You know, when I was walking around on the crutches just doing my job, I was not thinking that I was being an example to anybody. I was just going out doing what God asked me to do in spite of the pain. You never know the simple things that you do in your life that are impacting people's lives. And I'm going to guarantee you, most of the stuff you're going to get blessed for in heaven, and God's going to say, here's your, here's your reward for doing this. God, I was, just, I was just living my life. It was no big deal. And God's saying, no, you don't know how big a deal it was when it influenced these people. We never know what little things are going to be rewarded. 
So never sell yourself short when you're thinking, I'm not doing anything. If you are a Christian, God is using your life to influence people. And God is going to reveal it to us in heaven. All the little things that we didn't think were important. God, I was just living my life. God, uh, I was just going to church every week. You know, what do you, what do you mean these people were watching me and, and it made an impression on their life? I was just going to church because I loved being at church. God, I wasn't trying to be, I wasn't trying to impress anybody when I did this. I was just, I just loved doing it. And God's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant in that area. Look at all these people that, that saw your life and were touched by it. Don't sell yourself short because you don't know what you're doing that is going to be used to minister to people. Sometimes we know a little bit about what we're doing to minister to people, but there's going to be many areas of our life where we just don't know how we've touched people's lives. The times you put your offering in the offering plate, and it really, you, you thought about maybe not doing it, and you put it in anyway out of, out of just obedience. How did God use that money to reach the lost? Without that money, maybe somebody would not have been reached. We don't know what, what, where we're obedient and God is going to use it. And it may just be simple. Like I say, for me, it could be just as simple as I go to church. Plain and simple. The church doors are open, I go there. And it's not now because I'm a pastor. It's been all my life, other than those two years. The doors are open to the church, I go to church. Not for trying to impress anybody. Not for trying to say, look how spiritual I am but because I love being with God's people. I can guarantee there's people out there that have watched us over the years go to church. Mm -hmm. Maybe never said anything. They're saying, those people really believe what they're doing. Maybe it's brought somebody to a step closer to Christ. I don't know. But I can tell you right now, there's people looking at what you do, how you live, what you say, how you behave in certain situations, and saying, they're different. They're different. I want to know their God. I want to know who, how that God makes them so the, the way they are. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. Lord, help us to stand up as lights. Give us the strength to be obedient. Give us the strength to be those lights. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.